Welcome to Talking New Energy, a podcast from LCP Delta, the new energy experts. In the podcast, we'll be exploring how the energy transition is unfolding across Europe through conversations with guests from the leading edge of the transition. Hello, and welcome to the episode. Gas networks are right in the middle of the energy transition. Now, for decades, their role has been to distribute natural gas to millions of homes and buildings and industries across Europe and around the world. But what role will they play in the energy transition as we move away from natural gas to meet our decarbonisation goals? To explore this question, I'm joined by two guests, Angie Needle, Director of Strategy at Cadent, who are one of the four major uh, gas distribution companies in the UK, serving 11 million homes and businesses. Hello, Angie. And Brendan Murthy, Head of Hydrogen at LCP Delta. Hello, Brendan. Hi, John. Um, Angie, you're also Vice President of Hydrogen UK, so keen to also hear from you how you see the development of the clean hydrogen sector uh, in the UK as well. Now, uh, let's start digging into gas networks. And there's some very strong opinions and views about the role of gas networks in the future. Um, Angie, I'm going to lay out the opinions, and I hope you don't mind me laying out either end of the spectrum. So at one end, you've got a view that everything will be electrified, we'll build a much bigger electricity system and distribution network, and we won't need gas distribution. At the other end of the spectrum, uh, then clean hydrogen will come along and uh, be a solution for homes and buildings. And... uh, gas networks will be transporting that clean hydrogen to all of the homes and buildings and industries that they currently serve. So, Angie, with that spectrum laid out, your job must be fascinating at the moment. Yeah, hello. It is it is very fascinating. And we we the place where I tend to start when we talk about the gas networks is talk about what it does today so that you can understand how moving to net zero is essential in really thinking about the role of gas and whether that be natural gas or hydrogen or other green gases like biomethane. And so today's gas network delivers uh, natural gas for power generation in the UK. So about half of the electricity is made from natural gas. So it it steps in when it's not windy. So it provides that intermittency support, which is very important from a resilience point of view. Um, It heats 23 million homes and half a million businesses. Uh, It powers industry um, and there's lots of industrial processes in the UK that need a flame, for want of a better word, to to work properly. So I think the other thing to understand is the the gas network in the UK is probably the most extensive in the world per head um, and uh, safest and all the other great things that mm. you know we invested chose to invest in gas in the UK, which means that we've got this great asset that we really need to think about when you're moving to net zero. How do you make sure you recycle as much of this existing asset as possible without adding a cost, if you like, to the energy system? Um, and what we do know is the gas network is a really good way of transporting energy around our system. So about three times more gas is transported in in the gas networks than electricity today, and about five times that in the middle of winter. So it it provides a really important service. Mm. And so when we think about net zero, you've got to look at each bit of its its use um, and how you shift away from natural gas and the role of the gas networks when you start thinking about hydrogen. 
Yeah, that, that five times in the middle of winter, I think that's a, a fascinating uh, metric that even on a cold winter's day when we've got our peak electrical demand, the demand that the gas network is serving is five times bigger than electrical demand. Yeah, and that, uh, that's just because, you know, gas can be stored, it's a molecule, it provides heat, and the gas networks are designed to survive a one in 20 winter. Um, and it, it is really the resilient backbone of the country, which is why when we're thinking about net zero, it's so important to think about resilience um, and energy yep. storage together with electricity rather than being separate things. Now, the, the policy debate can be quite, um, it, it, it can exist along the whole of that spectrum or, or that spectrum is discussed in policy circles around whether we're all electric or all hydrogen or what mix of the two. And the assets that Caden and other uh, gas distribution network companies manage are very, very long-term assets. As you said, they've been built up over many, many years. So in terms of your investments, what's it like at the moment trying to make investments with high levels of uncertainty about the network in the future? Yeah, it's a really good question because our, our investors quite rightly want to know how much of our network is going to be there in 2050 and what are the returns mm. going to be like. Um, and, but what we do know is that we're going to be using less natural gas on the road to net zero, quite rightly. And we, we also know that customers want choice in how they heat their homes. And we're dealing with this huge amount of uncertainty because the policies in the UK that decide on heating in particular, which is a big proportion of the energy that goes through the distribution network is to heat homes. The mm. decisions around all of that are still fairly um, up in the air. And that is because uh, the, there's a focus on electrification of new builds, which is quite rightly, and there's a focus on getting heat pumps rolling out. But if we're really honest, that's happening very slowly in the UK. It's a bit of yeah. an outlier, maybe, to some other countries. Um, and what we have discovered is people want to choose. They want to choose a heating system, and then they want to choose the type of type of uh, heating system that they have, whether it's a Baxi or a Worcester Bosch or an Ideal or a Valent or a heat pump. Or... So they're really mm. bothered uh, about making their own decisions about their homes, which means that we're having to plan for are we having, where are we going to have the gas network? So where is it certain in any eventuality that you are going to need gas infrastructure? And the answer to that is industrial clusters, storage, connecting up big hydrogen clusters for, um, for resilience and market design. And then yeah. where are the locations where you can't electrify easily? The businesses, industry, and buildings so that you can start to build this picture. Um, and then you overlay customer choice and you have to chuck it all up in the air and start, mm. start again. So, you know, being able to understand all that in, mm. and the difference between local, regional and national resilience planning is, is tricky. Um, and and so, what I would say is that we're looking forward to the, the future system operator in the UK, which is the sort of new body that government are developing that helps think about the planning of these important bits of infrastructure on a no regret so, basis. So, so I think you raised some really interesting points there, Angie. I think quite often in this discussion or in this debate, it, it, as, you, as you alluded to, John, it's very 
polarized. And I think quite often in those discussions or in those arguments, a lot of issues or problems or challenges are assumed away um, in the interest of efficiency or what or, or whichever position um, you know that party is taking. Uh, you know what you've just been through, and with all the the sort of, the role that the gas distribution has, and and how important it has been for us over the decades. Uh, it's not just um, from an energy point of view, but it's also it also plays a really important social role. Um, you can't just sort of remove that from the system for the sake of efficiency and replace it with uh, total electrification, which in itself brings enormous challenges of grid reinforcement and um, and also the point you made about resilience. Uh, you know, it's it's never a good idea, and I think the last couple of years, or at least the last year for sure, is showing that resilience is uh, still really important. Um, energy security and energy resilience are uh, quite rightly now more of a priority than they probably should have been for the last sort of ten to twenty years. And um, placing all of our bag, all of our eggs into the electrification basket is probably a little bit silly um, in the long run. And, and what I think, Brendan, is that w- w- when you speak in the sort of sensible government circles and, and you speak to the Committee on Climate Change, or like, nobody's really in the place where you electrify everything. Um, I think this, so the general rule of thumb that I hear is about 30% of the net zero energy system is going to be hydrogen or an alternative gas, for want of a better word, because there is biomethane and other gases available, um, but broadly hydrogen. And that is fundamentally part of managing flexibility of electricity and making sure there's enough energy for the peak of winter. So it may be that hydrogen is going to be used in some buildings that can't electrify to top up uh, hybrid Mm. heat pump systems to power industry and businesses. But I think assuming that you don't need it full stop, I think I think that's I'm hoping that is slowly going away actually now. But I do I do hear you. I do hear about it frequently. In a, Unfortunately, it's still the case. In a way, the more you electrify, the more you need uh, to manage the peaks and the troughs, and the bigger the role for hydrogen in managing those peaks and troughs. So you've got the national level, and then the other level is a very local level. You talked about Angie, where. You might have industrial clusters. You might have homes that are really, for whatever reason, difficult to fully electrify. And therefore, you have the gas network. But I'm interested to hear your thoughts, Angie, on how the challenges to repurpose a gas network to run on maybe blends initially, but ultimately 100% or much higher proportions of hydrogen or biomethane or, or lower zero carbon gases. Um, some of our listeners, I think, will be really interested to understand how, okay, get it, we've got pipes, we can just put different gases through it. Practically, what's that like to try and prepare for and get ready for? Yeah, so it's a great question. So unfortunately, we can't just turn on the hydrogen tap from nope. to 100% and everything stays the same in people's homes and buildings. I would love that, by the way. I, I talked to boiler manufacturers out, can you, can you make me an eat everything boiler, please? And you just, whatever blend of gas you've got, you know, it's good. We can't invent one of those just yet, unfortunately. So we've got um, a situation where we know, we've done lots of tests and trials on gas network, that you can put a 20% blend into existing, existing gas networks. 
um, at the distribution level, tests are still going on at transmission level to um, put a, a blend of hydrogen in. Now, blends are useful to a point um, yeah. because they help hydrogen production to get going. It gives them to, somewhere to put the hydrogen should they have issues balancing supply and demand and things like that. But it's not an end goal and it's not going to get to, you know, large decarbonisation. No, because 20% blend is actually less, it's a smaller percentage for actual carbon reductions, isn't it? 6% carbon reductions. So whilst 6% is not to be sniffed at, right? Because if you had 6% carbon reductions plus an energy efficiency programme and insulation, you're talking 20%, you know, so uh, net zero is about incremental improvements. um, And so they're all valuable. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Um, but 100% is the is the goal, really, because you can't have a gas network with natural gas in it forevermore. And so what we are doing is running a series of projects that explore both the technical and safety aspects of hydrogen, uh, 100% hydrogen conversion, and the practicalities of actually doing it. So on the technical side of things, there's a project called H21, which is led by Northern Gas Networks. And they've looked at everything from 100% hydrogen in the existing pipes, all the things, the components that hydrogen interfaces with, pressure management, all those kinds of things. And the good news is, is that the existing network that's largely plastic now, and there's a program to replace the, most of the mains at the moment, um, which has been running for quite a long time, um, it's a it's a perfect compatible material for hydrogen conversion. So from a network's point of view, we're, we're pretty confident that 100% hydrogen uh, will work in the existing assets in the ground, which is great. We want to recycle as much of the pipes as we can. Yeah. We don't have to build too much new. And yeah. then the other bit is how do you actually convert? What, what experience do consumers have? What kind of changes do you need to do in the home? Uh, do you need different metering? Actually, how do you, how would you go about a conversion process? Hmm. I, well, I mean, that is a big old change. Um, so what we do know is that we've done it before because there was yep. towns gas conversion in the UK in the 60s and 70s. You do need a street-by-street conversion. And this is what I love about hydrogen conversion because if you can imagine decarbonisation zones, and you go, okay, well, this week we're going to do your street. And we told you a year in advance what was going to happen. Mm. And we gave you the choice at that time as to whether you wanted to stay on gas and have hydrogen or switch to an electric alternative like a heat pump. You can go systematically through the building stock in this country and have like a decarbonisation uh, rollout, if you like. And that is why I'm a massive advocate of gas and electricity working together to make sure you've yes. got a plan of coordination of how you get there. Because I fear if you leave it down to individual consumers making their individual choices at the time that their boiler breaks, that's not going to get us to net zero. No. And it's it's fascinating looking at other countries, I think. If you look at, um, you know, talking to people in Stockholm, for example, they might be they might own their flat, but they might be told, actually, you've got to move out for a few days because we're putting in a heat network connection. Um, now, that's a bit drastic, but... Uh, in the Netherlands, the a lot of the networks, electricity and gas networks, are owned by the same company. So they're going area by area, really bottom-up community-based approach. Which networks are we going to build in this area, or which networks are we going to keep? What will we build out? Heat, electricity, hydrogen. Um, so 
it really does engage people at very much a community level. And it's quite different from the market-based approach that we've been used to with the energy system in the UK and other countries. I'm quite intrigued by this because I've got a feeling that that kind of approach might not work in the UK. And I'm interested to understand why is it that we are different, if you like, because Mm. of the sort of bottom-up approach in Europe and getting communities together to make those things happen seems to work for a whole range of reasons, cultural ones, society ones, different ownership of the infrastructure. There might be all kinds of reasons. But I think the way the UK is fragmented as well from our ownership of different networks point of view makes that much harder. I don't know the answer to that question. Uh, Brendan, yeah. you might have a view. Yeah, well, uh, I mean, in my previous in my previous life, um, I worked on two very large flagship programs for the UK government to launch their heat networks policies um, to try and build out heat networks in, in large urban areas and Right at the very start of those projects, uh, we identified that cultural difference is probably, I mean, there's always the sort of the planning laws and regulations and everything else, but they can be overcome quite easily. It's the behavioral and cultural and societal differences that were seen as the biggest challenges to overcome. And I think that that's reflected across all parts of society, as, as you sort of alluded to, um, in, in the way that we have um, open uh, markets for the supply of energy. You can pick and choose your supplier as, as, as often as you like. Um, that doesn't really exist in the same way in a lot of continental Europe. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's a it's it's a really interesting one. And I think I think what the point you're making, uh, Ange, about uh, choice, I think is really important because to build a successful policy program, a net zero pathway it needs to reflect the society in which it's being applied. Um, so I think you, you have to allow that choice. You can't dictate from on high that this is the way that things shall be done. Uh, it just doesn't work that way well, <laughs> in this my, country. I would contrast that with, so I agree with you, Brendan, but then when I think back to the COVID and I'm reading a book at the moment about how the UK coped with the COVID uh, pandemic. And a lot of the scientific advice was, well, we can't have a lockdown because people in the UK won't tolerate a lockdown. Um, But actually, if you lead people and you explain why, then I think what COVID showed in the UK and other countries is people actually will come together around some common purpose. Now, whether response to climate change, reducing carbon emissions and changes to energy networks can ever have such an emotive feel as COVID or not, I don't know. Um, but I think it is a, a big unknown in terms of how we, how much can we do at the local bottom-up level. Mm. Um, and, and don't you think that comes back to how much we talk about it? So there's very low awareness of your heating system's impact on net zero. Um, we've done our own research on on consumer awareness, if you like, for technologies. You know, one of our recommendations to government have always been like, you really need to start talking about the importance of this to give people enough time and space to get used to the idea that they're going to have to do something different and we might have to do it in a coordinated way. Um, and I, I do think there's a big gap here. And one of the things we've done as a gas sector, along with the boiler manufacturers and a, and a few others, is create a programme called Hello Hydrogen. 
and um, it is simply an education program about the potential role of hydrogen in your homes in the future. Um, mm. And it's really just starting as early as you can, even when we're still thinking about it, to start to get the messages out there. Um, it, almost in the same way that electric vehicles started, like people now yeah. know that at some mm. point in the future, you are going to have to have a different car. Now, the good thing is that your electric cars are nicer and, and easier in some instances and there's something attractive about them we've got to do the same thing with heating there's got to be a value proposition that is attractive to consumers and i mm. think that's that's also a bit of a stumbling block because it doesn't always feel that way with some of the changes that we're imposing on folks and I, and I suppose that's an interesting, you know, you mentioned earlier that it's really important for gas and electricity to work alongside each other and, and not to, to fight each other. And I suppose in that respect, electricity and power is slightly ahead of the, the um, how you, I don't want to use that word, I'm, but the, the, the cool um, uh, trend, if you like, because it's got all of the smart devices, it's got all the clever stuff, it's got all the apps and, you know, uh, you know, smart fridges and TVs and gas doesn't really have that. So but- even when it comes down to like the heating system, like I was going to say, Angie, that I think heat pumps are now probably a topic of dinner time conversation in some households, whereas they weren't <laughs> years ago because of the, yeah. uh, the energy crisis. I don't know if uh, hydrogen ready boilers would be a topic of conversation, but I guess that's your point that had that common uh, to have the education amongst people as to what is possible in the future. Yeah, and, and people aren't that bothered about their heating systems in the UK. Uh, I, I do think some people in Europe are very proud of the heating system that they have in mm. their home. But the, in the UK, it's what it does. Right? It's, it keeps me warm. I get hot water. And if it yeah. doesn't keep me warm and I don't get hot water at a price that I can afford, then it, that, that's when it becomes a problem. I, I don't think there's much thought to exactly how it does that or whether it does it, you know, in, the, in, a, in a different way or not. So I, so, I just think we're much less interested in it. Certainly different from Germany. And uh, 20 years ago when micro heat and power was going to change the world in Germany, some of the marketing of that, and this was really amongst innovators and very early doctors, was people would have a... Uh, a micro CHP party to show off their new heating appliance to their neighbours. <laughs> we should I, do I that. that. Hydrogen party. <laughs> um, I want to move the conversation on to uh, another t- point, which is around the availability of hydrogen. So I think what we've talked about is getting the gas network. The gas network can be repurposed. There's uh, choices and decisions and strategic thinking about where you would repurpose it. and um, But in terms of how much hydrogen would be available, because some of the people that push towards electrification might say, okay, we're going to have very small amounts of hydrogen and we need to be super careful about where we use them. And then others will say, well, at some point when the marginal cost of renewables and the capital cost comes down and we can build floating offshore wind wherever we want, we could have huge amounts of hydrogen. Um, so... I guess, Angie, both in your Caden and Hydrogen UK role and Brendan in your Hydrogen Expertise role, how do you think about that? Will we have enough hydrogen at scale to be pushing large amounts through the gas network? I find it's one of those chicken and egg questions. If you think there's not going to be enough, then there won't be enough because you won't set big enough targets to have enough. Um, And then obviously there's different 
colors and types of making hydrogen i think they they all have potential so long as they are low carbon so green blue you know uh, pink solar whatever um there is and the obviously the more you build renewables the more uh, curtailment there needs to be uh which means you could either sell the surplus electricity but if europe's also got surplus then you need to do something with that and you can put it in batteries but you can make hydrogen too and so when we look at the analysis it kind of depends what your rules are. Um, so you can definitely have enough hydrogen in the UK if you import, if you relied on blue hydrogen as well as green for a while. And we have good infrastructure offshore to have uh, a bigger proportion of blue hydrogen than some other countries. So it's whether that's palatable or not, and blue is going to be cheaper than green. So I, th- I do think there is um, value in his talking about whether there will be enough but my mm. main worry, by the way, is the government isn't setting big enough hydrogen production targets. And so in itself is limiting the amount of hydrogen production. And, you know, in the first instance, the 2030 policy in the UK is 10 gigawatts. And that's focused around industrial decarbonisation and no hydrogen for any other use, really. And that isn't enough. And so there's a bit of both going on. Like you've got to set a big enough target to attract the investment to scale production to bring the cost mm-hmm. down so that you can, do you see what I mean? It's a bit of a circular yeah. argument. Yeah. I think that's a really good point. We, we, we're just about to wrap up a, pro, a really important project um, looking at the hydrogen to power business model, um, modeling out volumes, availability, price, etc. And the single greatest concern or risk for project developers in that space is uh, fuel availability. And um, I, I think that, that there's different types of fuel availability. That's fuel available at a national level. So whether we produce enough nationally, which I think is what you, you're talking about. And then there's also fuel available in the moment that you need it to burn to produce power because you're being called onto the grid at that moment to cover a shortfall. Um, which is a different type of availability, but more urgent almost. And I think some of the really uh, big, the, the difference with hydrogen, the really big challenges for hydrogen is that, which is different to natural gas, is that I suppose it has so many different applications and therefore you're you're operating in a marketplace competing with other sectors for the same fuel and they have different demand profiles, different prices, different requirements and risks attached to those businesses. Um, and I, I think I, I think I agree with you. I think rather to have too much of it than than not enough. Um, otherwise, you start to get into the realms of doing potentially silly things like ring fencing blocks of it for purposes and and um, getting into the realms of controlled economies and planned economies when really we should be aiming for more sooner. Um, uh, and yes, things will come in from other countries and the price will be different. And but then. The market will settle and we'll get to a place where we sort of know what the global hydrogen price is or give or take and there's a bit better flow of the fuel and i suppose if you think about this you step back a little bit you know the natural gas market is over 100 years old it's it's had lots of time to solve these problems and uh, set prices and create arrangements and transports uh, infrastructure we've got 27 years to fix the net zero problem and we're still talking about some of the fundamental building blocks of a hydrogen economy we just don't have time to to try be fiddly 
the ambition on, needs to be there. <laughs> on that time point, Angie, how well is it? How well do you think the UK government is doing in terms, or the UK is doing in terms of getting that momentum and speed? You talked about the target might not be ambitious enough in 2030. Is there that sense of urgency? Is the UK doing enough? If not, what should it be doing? Yeah, I mean, today the CCC uh, put out their report on the government's progress towards net zero ambition, and it was pretty brutal in Mm. their evaluation. Now, I I work with civil servants on a day-to-day basis. I mean, the fact is, it's a colossal change of an energy system that we are trying to implement in a short space of time. And the policies and the thinking that you need to put in place, it's really complicated. And yes, it's fragmented as well. Um, uh, And I I would just like government to think about the absolute no regrets things that they should be really pushing quite hard on. And and don't forget there's, um, in in the UK, there's potential new government, there's energy bills, there's affordability challenges, um, you know, the... Out, out out of COVID. There's all kinds of things that are putting pressure on the public purse, which means that we're having to think really carefully about how you... I think the energy trial end has got more... <laughs> more it's got more complicated, year, yes. Year, mm. year or two. Um, and so I, I just think the big there's big things that we know we need regardless. We need pipes, we need storage, we need hydrogen production, we need as much renewables as we can get our hands on. Let's just get cracking with those things that are an absolute given. Let's have a good energy efficiency and consumer education programme. So there's big things that we need to push on. Well, let's use that as a segue to bring out the Talking New Energy crystal ball. And this week, I'd like to set the dial to 2030, with that date's come up a couple of times, seven years away. And uh, Angie and Brendan, I'd like you to imagine you're looking back from 2030. Can you give us a, imagine you're giving a pen portrait or an elevator pitch for the UK hydrogen sector in 2030? How would you describe it? Uh, oh, so, this, this, Angie, you might is... want to weave gas networks into there in some way or not, up to you. <laughs> uh, but Angie, do you want to go first and then you, Brendan? Yeah, and I, I'm, I'm going to give you an optimistic uh, 2030. Good, I'm always portrait. a glass half full person. So Yeah, because yeah. I think it's easy to think, well, oh, crikey, this is a bit tricky. But in 2030, I, I expect that we will have the first two big blue hydrogen clusters up and running and we'll have really good spectrum of green hydrogen production demonstrating that it can be done. I think we'll have made really good progress on the first town pilot, um, which I don't want to be calling town pilot anymore for hydrogen. I want it to be a decarbonisation zone, working closely yep. with electricity uh, on how we street by street make homes um, not only low carbon, but better, better for consumers as a whole. Can you imagine you retrofit as you go? And from a gas distribution point of view, I think we'll be well into thinking about what a conversion program looks like. And there obviously could be decommissioning parts in that too. So I think we'll have a really good plan by 2030. I don't think we'll have done as much execution as we would have liked. Okay. (laughs) I like your optimism. I think that's a a great vision to be starting to. Brendan? 
Yeah, I think it's a fair enough reflection. I think also more more globally, I think we'll see uh, by that stage some cooperation uh, across uh, regions or countries in those hydrogen hotspots globally. I think you'll start to see some of the um, tensions, maybe. Uh, maybe tensions is the wrong word, but some of the dynamics, market dynamics changing as uh, the import-export picture becomes a bit clearer. Uh, and I think we'll get a little bit closer towards a market-based price setting mechanism. Um, and hopefully if everything goes to plan and um, we see what Andrew's described and we see some of that interconnectedness across Europe as well, maybe a little bit less, um, or at least the first steps towards uh, less subsidy and more commodity, commodity uh, market prices and market uh, forces. Which is what so, we really need soon, because we we need lots of we need lots of molecules flying around, and we need it at a good price. So the emergence of a bit of a global trade, if that's not too strong, Brendan, of some import from those hydrogen hotspot regions like Southern Africa or Chile or Australia. Yeah, North Africa yeah. and Saudi Arabia and the Middle East to begin with, and then yeah. yes, uh, Namibia, um, ammonia coming in. Yeah, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Fingers crossed, I'll also go glass half full on this one. Okay. Well, it's it's a huge amount to do, but a huge amount that's already been done, I think, in terms of building knowledge and understanding in the hydrogen space. Um, I I don't like the either-or electrification hydrogen discussions. I like that the and discussions, and then it's just a case of exactly where the slide lands in terms of the combination of the two. Uh, we, we definitely need all the clean electricity and as much electrification as we can get, but we need hydrogen for the, uh, the balancing of the system and the parts of the system that are hard to decarbonize with electricity. So um, if we're going to meet our carbon goals, we need to be pushing forward on every front we can. Um, Angie, thanks so much for your time and sharing your your expertise and perspectives. Thanks for having me. Brendan, thanks again. Pleasure always. Thanks very much. And thanks to everyone for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. It gave you some new perspectives and things to think about. Uh, remember, please rate us on your uh, po- on the platform that you listen to if you like the podcast. And you can send us ideas for future episodes or speakers at talkingnewenergy at lcp.com. Thanks very much and goodbye. If you enjoy the podcast, then please rate it and share it with your friends and colleagues. If you're as passionate about the energy transition as we are, then you can keep in touch with us and look at our research insights, podcast transcripts and download reports all at www.lcpdelta.com.